0: Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. At Kroger, we believe it takes the right team to bring you the freshest produce. That's why we partner with farmers who grow only the best. And that level of teamwork means better, fresher options time and time again. Working with farmers is what it takes to be fresh for everyone kroger fresh for everyone it's the big ten dollar sale so mix and match and get two three four five or even ten for ten dollars with your card so many great deals kroger fresh for everyone Welcome, I'm so glad you can join us on Mission Evolution, where we bring the latest knowledge from today's leading experts to support your evolutionary process. I'm your host, Gwilda Wieeka. This hour, we'll be exploring evolution through lifelong brain development. We've been led to believe our brains develop through childhood, peak in our 20s, and then deteriorate as we age. What if they did not have to be the case? What if we could continue to develop our brains lifelong? Could we evolve as individuals through the process rather than slowly deteriorate over time? Joining us from Denmark to explore this intriguing possibility is Marianne Benson. Marianne is the author of Neuroaffective Meditation, a practical guide to lifelong brain development, emotional growth and healing trauma. She's a psychotherapist and trainer in neuroaffective development psychology. Marianne is also the author and co-author of many professional articles and books, including the Neuroaffective Picture Book. She's taught in 17 countries and presented at more than 35 international and national conferences. Her website, MarianneVinson.com.
1: Marianne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I, I think you welcomed me, but your, your voice ran out. So I'm really happy to be here and I'm very excited about what we're going to be doing, which, of which I have no idea. Well, we'll have fun together, I'm
0: sure of it. <laughs> so you're a psychotherapist. Where did you get your education?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I I actually started out as a psychomotor therapist and the psychomotor training that I took was uh, oriented towards psychotherapy. And uh, when I was finished with it, I was about 25. And um, then uh, two, three years later, I was uh, invited into a group that started the first body psychotherapy training uh, in Denmark. So uh, I actually became a psychotherapist uh, just before I started making psychotherapy trainings. um, And then I took more help, help build more trainings. So I'm afraid I've, I've created more trainings and participated in creating many more trainings that I've taken. So when um, um, you mentioned you started in psycho, what was that again? psychomotor development. So the connection between uh, psychology and motor development, particularly when we're very, very young and when we are born and for the first few years, uh, the primary connector uh, of our personality development is the connection between the uh, motor development and the perceptual development and our personality. And later that shifts so that our cognitive skills are more closely linked and the body is less closely linked. So there's that pattern that unfolds. Fascinating. So I, I understand you teach. What, what's the focus of your teaching at this point? Well, it's a neuroaffective development. And uh, the, the basic concept of that is to discover that what with both the motor and the cognitive parts of personality development, what we, what we have is a kind of uh, a Rosetta Stone of, of uh, the ways that we can create moments of meeting and also the realization through a number of different researchers that what really changes us is the sense of moments of meeting. So changes us in the sense of what makes us develop. What makes us develop is the feeling that somebody meets me and sees me and responds to me in in a synchronized uh, fashion. It's very much like music in that way. Uh, you can say that we sing, we are we are sung into adulthood, into healthy adulthood. So by moments of meeting, you mean when we can really connect with other human beings? A real sense of connection with other human beings and a sense of being on the same wavelength as other human beings and uh, being in flow with other human beings, that sense of having a really good connection and later in that really good connection that you develop all the different aspects of relationship that make you also trust that person.
0: So that's what starts to go on between, hopefully, between parent and child to start out with. And then does, do those moments of meeting, of course, then expand?
1: They expand and they continue to develop until we die. So you have these moments of meeting as the way that we develop close relationships and trustworthy relationships for the rest of our lives.
0: What happens to our approach to
1: moments of meeting when we have trusted and been betrayed? Well, uh, actually trusting and at least losing trust and then redeveloping trust is a central part of how we develop secure attachment, um, where if you never feel betrayed, um, then there's a way that you're Trust perhaps has not been tested. Or you know, I, could, I could put that differently. I could say there's something you don't learn. You don't learn that terrible things can happen and then it can become better again and it can become good again. And so it sounds like it actually particip- You know, goes towards um, building resilience. It relates to resilience. Resilience is is certainly to discover that. Um, and I think that secure attachment, so the secure sense of being connected to another human being or to other human beings in the world is certainly requires that we have resilience. It's also, if you look at it, it's what we do a lot in psychotherapy. And it's also something that's really useful in your in your relationship to a spiritual teacher, for instance, that you have that sense that there's trust, that trust gets broken and that you can reestablish trust. It's essential for- Marianne, I'm sorry. Trust. Yeah, no, fine. Do you think um, that
0: we spend more time worrying about this sort of thing than we did in times past. In other words, in times past, it was, are the seeds going to be planted in time? Are the storms going to come and wash them away? We were just kind of hand to mouth. And now we have a little more leeway. Is that giving us an opportunity to really explore these moments of of connection and evolve as a result?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, actually, one of the researchers, Daniel Stern, uh, who's I think originally American, really, um, he um, he said that uh, that the um, uh, the film when when we invented the possibility of of making movies of other people, uh, that was just as important for our understanding of psychology and of the parent-child relationship as um, the the ability to make uh, telescopes was for for exploring the the sky and the universe. So it tells you something because when did that happen? It happened in the early 70s. So we're talking a time span of 50 years where we've learned to look more in a more detailed fashion. And what happens with that is that we discover things that we just did not know. For instance, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, we didn't know that the primary way that unborn children and newly born children interact with their parents is through synchronization. We synchronize with each other. If we go back to the late 80s, the early 90s, 30 years ago, we didn't know that there was such a thing as as, uh, mirror neuron capacity in the brain. We didn't know that there was this... uh, um, uh, this matching that just happens that happens all the time that happens in any good connection and so now what how what is the synchroni- what is the synchronization what what's that look like well uh, what does it look like it looks like when that for instance if you have two people talking together then one person will be making some movements they're talking and then they'll be quiet the other person is typically nodding along or going, mm, or or kind of smiling, or they're responding in microseconds relative to the first person. And also, when they start talking, which is often quite soon after that, then they'll use movements that are similar. So there's an imitative process to it, and then there's a synchronizing process that when you do something, I respond to it. That when you do something, and then I I respond by with an immediate um, feedback, as it were fascinating so that probably goes a long way towards socialization and finding your safe place in the world safe place in the world absolutely socialization is a slightly different kettle of fish because you have to start doing things you don't want to do and you have to not do things that you do want to do kind of like puppies and kittens (laughs) we were talking about puppies and kittens just earlier and absolutely it's certainly
0: a process and children are no different are they Mm -hmm. absolutely pretty fascinating. We're just about out of time in this segment, but how did you come from background in psychology to working with meditation? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I guess uh, uh, it was sort of an accident. Um, uh, I, I'd, been looking, I'd been looking for a spiritual path that I thought might suit me for a long time. But uh, it, it felt like I, I, didn't, I didn't really find what I needed or wanted, or, and then uh, the, the trainer that I am still using 30 years later uh, came to do some teaching in, in, the, um, in the psychotherapy training that I did, and then he invited some of us to come to a training uh, that he was doing, and uh, I went, and it just felt like the right place, and it's felt like the right place ever since.
0: And so you started then integrating um, what you were doing with psychotherapy and meditation. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that was another accident (laughs) Uh, that actually happened because I thought it might be nice for some of the people to, uh, um, to be able to use sensation and internal experience and to explore some of these internal spaces that fit with the maturational level And then I realized that a number of the people that I had in in the trainings, in the workshops, they were actually uh, already meditators. So I started doing a morning meditation where we could go into more kind of spiritual aspects of of the meditative process. And then they started asking me to do trainings um, instead of just doing, you know, 25 minutes each morning. Talk about
0: happy accidents. Well, (laughs) it is. It is that time. Marianne and I will return shortly, so please don't go away. This is Mission Evolution. For more information or to access past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. We're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. With us this hour discussing meditation and brain development is Marianne Benson. Her website, MarianneBenson.com. Marianne, we just started talking about how you got into meditation and started pulling it together with psychotherapy. What is neuroaffective meditation?
1: <laughs> uh, it's a weird mix of uh, neuroaffective personality development and meditative process. Personality development and meditative process. Mm-hmm. How did those two go together? <laughs> uh, well, when I started meditating, I started to realize that uh, a lot of what happened in, um, in people, including me, um, when we meditated, was a kind of uh, um, acceleration of something that happens with aging. Uh, there, there's this old saying, which is that wisdom comes with age, but sometimes age comes alone. Um, and uh, what happened was this sense of, of expanding and getting more, um, a softer sense of things that go wrong. and. A deeper sense of the beauty in the world and a deeper sense of of caring without having to work to care you know how it is you can work to care when you don't really care but then there's also the caring that comes by itself um, and that seems to be related somehow to love and all of those things caring and loving and also developing a little bit more space between yourself and both, I guess, the difficulties and also some of the pleasures in, in, in life that, that doing that all seems to come more with age than with youth. So it seemed to be a, a, a mat- an accelerated maturation process. And um, that's it. As we mature,
0: Do we start to learn how to stay more in the front brain where we have logic and compassion and spirituality um, than being popped into the back brain every time we see a little angst come up in our world? Is that part of the maturation process? And does meditation help you do that? I,
1: I don't think that that's... Um, what happens in maturation, and I also don't think that meditation helps. <laughs> uh, I think that what happens in maturation processes is that you get a much better connection between the primitive parts of yourself, which is where, in a way, all the um, all the knowing of the world is in the wordless parts of us. So if we look at the deepest parts of us, the neuroaffective uh in the neuroaffective model you look at the autonomic nervous system the autonomic nervous system is wordless and will be until we die the limbic system which is emotional um, the autonomic is sensory the limbic is emotional the emotional system is also wordless until we die and then we come to to the cortex and that's where we start to get words but particularly the parts of us that are very verbal are also very distant from our immediate experience so what we want is a really good connection between the part of us that has words and the parts of us that feel and sense and experience life. Um, And that's what meditation I think does because it keeps working those, uh, uh, those lines of communication all the time. So maturation and meditation seem to go together on that. So it's an integrative process. That's right.
0: pretty pretty interesting so we often think of meditation as a sedentary thing you sit down and contemplate your navel or whatever but i understand you incorporate movement at some point why is that and how do you incorporate it
1: um well uh one thing i think that that uh, incorporating it actually came out of at least zen buddhism but i think that uh, there, there is uh, walking meditation also in, in different forms of Christian, um, Buddha, uh, Christian, Christian practices. And also in, in Islam, there are different forms of movement practices that are holy. You might call them sacred dancing, for instance. But um, for me, I believe that, that uh, the, the movement aspect is important because we spend a lot of time moving. And in some ways, part of the game of meditation, you could say, is that you start out sort of sitting on a couch or uh, in a chair or on a cushion and you're, you're because it, it takes some concentration and beginning to, to get a sense of what you're doing. And as you get better at it, then you start to do it when you're walking or painting or lying in your bed, falling asleep or waking up or standing in line by the bus or whenever. So as you practice
0: meditation, then you can incorporate it into your daily life very organically, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, you can. It's still important. It's kind of like uh, if, if uh, to, to jump and use a different metaphor, if I was um, if I was playing uh, an instrument. Um, I might go and, and, uh, and just jam with some other musicians or by myself somewhere, just playing and experimenting. <clears throat> but I might still need to spend time working with the scales and the precision. And uh, in meditation, I would do that on the cushion. So if you're really wanting to focus on something in particular, then
0: you do a still meditation. Is that, is that what you're alluding to?
1: Usually, yes. I would usually sit still, but I could also do it walking in the, in the forest.
0: Walking in the forest sounds real good to me. <laughs>
1: it does to most people. <laughs> so
0: um, you speak of, would you please speak to meditation as it relates to prayer?
1: I think that meditation and prayer are really, really closely linked. Um, and I think it's important to realize that. It's it's important to realize that there's a devotional aspect to uh, to meditation, and uh, also that there's a um, a witnessing aspect to prayer. So I think that those two things just go together. So it's uh, what what do you mean,
0: Marianne, when you say a witnessing aspect to
1: prayer? Well, it depends on what you're praying for. There are many different levels of prayer. but if you start off with um, first, you're usually praying for something that you want. so it's a or something that you don't want. You don't want to have some illness or have somebody that you really care about have an illness that seems dangerous to you uh, or you want a better job or something. you pray for that. that's that there, there's no. There's no witnessing in that as such because there's your desire. But you can also pray for something else. You can pray for the the betterment of the world or you can pray for for a a prayer of gratitude, just a prayer of beauty, of thanking, thanking uh, spirit of God for the beauty that's in the world. And the amazing fact that little sprouts are coming out of the ground even here in dark Denmark. Um, here in January. So, you know, you can pray for different things. With that prayer, it's there's a little bit more distance again. That's the witnessing aspect. I'm not kind of engaged in having, having those little sprouts come out of the ground. I'm just uh, watching for them and appreciating them as they show up. So it
0: sounds to me like what you're describing here is one form of prayer has agenda, and another form of prayer is a being more of a being present and appreciating is, mm-hmm. is that the differentiation you're making
1: you could put it like that yeah yeah okay.
0: so would uh you write about brain development from birth to death and you alluded to it a little bit what are some common misconceptions about how the brain
1: ed- ages well, most people think that the, the brain is done uh, developing when we're about 23, and then it uh, stops developing and it starts to break down. And when we're about 55, there is very little that the brain can do anymore. And uh, and end of story. Then we sort of hang out like uh, uh, these uh, um, decrepit critters until we die. Um, and that doesn't seem to be how it's, how it's going. So... For one thing, it seems to be that the brain, the the prefrontal function in the brain, the the part of the brain that's very logical and that likes recipes, that likes to do things in sequential fashions, that part of the brain matures somewhere between 25 and 27. Um, Other parts of the brain have already started to to stop working particularly well when we're 12 or 13, such as learning languages, which uh, is something that's really pretty open until we're 12 or 13 and then it shuts down not completely we can still learn languages but it just takes a lot more work so at 27 this function is really fast this logical function and then the logical function starts to deteriorate a little bit but then another function which is more holistic which looks at at the world not as this step that step this step that step this step but looks instead at what is this image what's happening here Um, how do i uh, how can i see this What is it? What is its nature? That kind of uh, perception starts to open up and starts to get a lot more active as we are 40 and 50 and 60 and 70. How can
0: we, and we're about out of time in this segment again, but how can we uh, encourage that?
1: Well, one of the things we can do is uh, to meditate, <laughs> which helps that. But uh, something that we can also do is just exercise. Exercise is important because the brain seems to be largely built for for exercising. So exercise is really important to, to keep uh, our brain function uh, as, as uh, stable and as uh, healthy as possible. So you mean
0: like mental exercise, not physical? I mean physical exercise.
1: Oh, okay. We'll grow okay.
0: Up- so keep moving, moving <laughs> keep moving, yeah. keep moving. Okay. Well, on the other side of a commercial break, I'd like to get into more how this physical exercise actually impacts the brain and can help us continue to develop versus deteriorate. However, Marianne and I will return to our discussion shortly. You stay right there. This is mission evolution for more information or to enjoy past archived episodes, visit www.mission. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. Our guest this hour is Marianne Benson. We're speaking about evolution through brain development. Her website, MarianneBenson.com. Marianne, we were getting into how physical exercise um, helps to continue to develop the brain and keep it lively into our latter years. Would you continue with that thought?
1: Um. Well, it's, it's basically the research that's been coming out uh, more and more strongly in the last 20 years or so, uh, that, that uh, if you want to keep your brain healthy, as well as your body healthy, exercise is uh, essential. And um, some people say that, that strength training is essential, which is partly because we lose a lot of muscle mass as we age, but uh, uh, also just, um, just aerobic exercise. Um, and again, as you age, just going for a walk in the forest will bring you up to aerobic exercise. So... <laughs> yes, the older we get, the less it takes, right? <laughs> That's right. You can be lazy when you're older. It's
0: wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that work? Does the circulation, um, you know, uh, medically, how does the physical movement help
1: the brain? Yeah. Um... I don't actually know too much about that. Um, It's it's not where my primary interest has been. Um, I've been more interested in the way that um, movement generates something, movement generates um, a a certain form of sympathetic activity because you're you're doing something, you're walking for instance, and then you can catch or you drop into a sense of flow where it feels as if the, uh, the walking is happening by itself. You, you you warm up and then the walking starts to happen by itself. And there's a pleasure in that. And that pleasure also carries with it a, a form of, of, of quietness. And that quietness is also that it's very close to a meditative state. So that mixture of activity and quietness is part of what uh, what develops the, um, uh, or creates the sense of, of, uh, uh, pleasure in in walking in the forest that can lead to that most people have a, this sense of opening into a sense of oneness with this forest. So that's what I've been exploring. I have I've only been been uh, keeping slightly up with the part about what exactly is it that uh, that uh, creates the improved um, brain function. But I know that some of it has to do simply with aeration. So you're right that, that uh, uh, the the expanding blood vessels and and the increased uh, circulation would be a, a good part of that
0: so the um, uh, meditative state that you can go into with with motion um, and calm it
1: really kind of takes you into a different place doesn't it it does take you into a different place, and the that's one of the interesting things about it is, and one of the reasons that I got interested in meditation originally was that, that that mixture of sympathetic and parasympathetic is what gives us deeper a deeper sense of concentration, and that deeper sense of concentration is also wider and has more of that holistic quality, that sense of of being able to grasp. A situation just by looking at it, instead of kind of having to go through step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is that that uh, when you get into into a certain level of, of meditative experience, you start to have fairly high levels of both sympathetic activation, which is is energizing, and also calm, which is parasympathetic. So you have this energizing and, and calmness rising at the same time and balancing each other and that's very similar to the experience of a, a trauma of uh, traumatic uh, states so one of the things that can happen with meditation is that you that you suddenly find that you've dropped into one of your one of your old traumas and you have to work with it um, and i don't know if i'm taking you completely off track right now but no not at all that's that's a very
0: important thought because if we don't process our traumas, doesn't that stunt our ability to develop um, resilience?
1: Yeah, it will do that. It's um, there will it's it's like uh, having having these uh, pain points that explode without warning in different parts of our system. So that's a very important thing to do, and it's also something that that meditative process can help with, but not do for us. You, you have to do some work with it. Uh, more in a more specific way, you have to work with, with the sensation aspect of it uh, to really get it grounded. And that will help you find a sense of, of, uh, of the timing of it and also put together the pieces that get lost. Um, Peter Levine, who's a, a dear friend of mine, once said something really beautiful about it. He said, it's, it's like you have this fragmented experience of trauma, and then you find a little island and then you work with that little island of stability. And then a little while later, you find another little island. And then you connect those two islands. And then you keep working with that. And pretty soon, you have a large piece of ground to stand on. And that's pretty much what it is. And it's it's uh, it's a process where the meditative dynamic can be helpful, particularly if you work with emotion and sensation, as well as the, the more cognitive aspects.
0: So- would you speak a little bit about um, this meditative uh, state and the unifying state that we can get into when we're using motion and meditation as it relates to creativity? Um, What do you mean by creativity? Um, Well, from my personal experience, I find that if I get, I do a lot of writing, authoring, composing, and if I get stumped, stuck, um, I just, set it aside and go for a walk. And on the walk, the next piece will come to me where I could sit and struggle with it for hours and not have it come. And so that creative writing piece will much more easily come to me when I'm out walking in a meditative state than if I'm sitting puzzling over it in front of a computer.
1: Yeah. That's one of the distractions that we have in meditation is that all kinds of solutions come all... (laughs) So yeah, uh, that's what happens. You, In a way, it, it, it relates to that balancing, I think, of, of, uh, of neurological states that you find yourself um, um, uh, letting go, releasing, and then this part of you that can grasp wholeness just grasps whatever it was that was bothering you. So that's, uh, that's the dynamic. That's one of the dynamics. So it can be helpful. And it's also obviously disturbing if what you're trying to do is meditate and first this solution pops up and then that solution pops up. And then there's this idea, which is fantastic. And then there's one more idea. And so one of my friends, he, he has a notepad next to him when he's meditating, because then he can write it down and let go of it. You know. <laughs> There's a certain amount of wisdom to
0: that. I've experienced (laughs) that that, that phenomenon myself. So it sounds like when you're um, going into this meditative kind of state that involves motion, you're actually freeing up a lot more of your resources, regardless of what you're working on.
1: Usually, yes. Um, That's one of the things that happens. I think another thing that happens, you open up resources. And one of the resources that opens is your sense of of, uh, freshness and beauty. Um, as we age, uh, again, to sort of return to, your, to, to some of the things you were asking about earlier, uh, as we age, there's a tendency to, to kind of see things as if we've seen them so many times before, uh, because we have. We have seen them so many times before. But as we, as we do that, uh, we also lose the freshness that we have never seen it before right now. And that's part of a, a really important part of what meditation gives us back this discovery that there's something new, that there's a there's a wonder in the world. So in that way, it keeps us fresh. And that's why it can also function as a way to remind us of the sense of what it is to be a child, how it is to be a child.
0: That sounds like you're speaking about it helps you stay in the moment so that you're not coloring it by your past experience or your future wishes. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Fascinating. So once we've started, gosh forbid, the mental decline, is there a way to turn it around? Movement.
1: Back to (laughs) movement. (laughs) Exercise, 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 and, uh, and also meditation is also helpful with that. But exercise is more helpful, largely probably because we've been moving for longer than we've been exercising, and then we've been meditating for. So. So it's easier to move than it is to
0: meditate because movement is something that's natural. Is that what you're uh, alluding to?
1: I, I think that many things are natural. Um, for instance, I don't think that I mean talking is is probably fairly complex, but we still do that for a long time. Um, I, I think that it's uh, it's it's a question of our brains were sort of built around movement. and and some uh, researchers think that 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 is the primary reason that we have a brain. Um, so, you know, we've been moving since we were fish, which is a very long time ago, and, uh, and uh, the brain is really organized to move. So a lot of things have had time to be uh, uh, aligned so that movement is really, really helpful to keep us, uh, to keep us healthy for as long as possible.
0: Well, it's fascinating. If you if you look at an infant, I always like looking at infants, because they they have a lot of wisdom in there going on. What's the first thing they do is they start squirming and wiggling and kicking their legs and they're they're never still if they're awake, really, for the most part. Is that where the movement really starts setting in? And then we have that to draw on uh, for the rest
1: of our lives? We actually start moving um, in utero, uh, so you get uh, the well. We know that because around three months we get these first sympathetic flutters from from the embryo. But uh, uh, but uh, we're we're moving all the time. We have a, a series of, of reflexes that are all in place, and uh, we've been we've been just moving since I know the what is it the fourth or fifth or s- fifth week of. Of intrauterine experience.
0: So, well, it is time for another break. Marianne and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion. So don't go away. This is Mission Evolution. For more information or to peruse past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Marianne Benson. Her website, MarianneBenson.com Marianne, let's talk about IQ. It, there's a lot of different schools of thought on intelligence quota and how to measure it and all that fun stuff. But it, you know, when, when I was in school, it's like they said, well, this is your IQ. This is what you have to work with for better or for worse. Can the have you experienced and have you learned while you're doing the meditation and the, the new approach that you're taking? Can you shift your IQ by,
1: by doing these exercises? Um, I, I actually don't know that because uh, I don't know anybody who's taken an IQ test before and then an IQ test uh, after 10 years of meditation. Um, so I don't have any data on that. It's, um, I'm sorry. No problem. It's,
0: it sounds like it very least frees up what you do have to use.
1: Yeah, yes. I, I it really does do that. And the maturation process also, I think, tends to um, to, to increase the way that we, that we can work with the IQ that we have. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And if we isolate
0: ourselves and keep ourselves in, in cotton, so to speak, and don't have those traumatic experiences, we actually limit our ability to um, access
1: our resources, don't we? We really do. And and one of the things about IQ is that uh, um, there are a lot of different uh, aspects to it. One of the one of the statements about IQ, IQ measurements is that what you measure uh, is basically what you get out of it. You know, you have certain things that you measure, and that's what you get out of it. For instance, there's usually a lot of uh, of uh, number uh, number. Uh, tests in an IQ test. And so people that uh, that don't do well with numbers get a lower IQ. But what does it actually say? It, it tells you something about how good you are at, at, uh, at the test, really. And um, tests and real life have sh- been shown to not have a whole lot to do with each other. So, it's amazing, isn't it? Because you, you can watch people that, you know, they've been
0: very scholastic, they're good with numbers, their IQ registers high. And yet, common sense zero, not a zip as standing next to a person that maybe their IQ seems fairly average, but they're much more functional in the world. Okay. Yeah, pretty amazing. I think we have to be careful where we put our um, value system when it comes to IQ tests and whatnot. So yeah. how, how this is, you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, I'd like you to go into it a little deeper. And that's how you uh, incorporate our relationship to the planet uh, to meditation
1: yeah i think that when i i mean part of it comes out of both this sense that that you also recognized will live uh, you you go for a walk in the forest and something happens uh, you feel connected in a different way to the forest the forest is part of the world uh, we are also part of the world but somehow we've created a story in our societies where we are different than the world is so our sense of of uh, uh, of being in the world is that that uh, we have done something either we, we own it or we have done something terrible to it and um, and we f- we feel as if in a way we are not part of it we just live in it um, and and I don't think that's good for us and I don't think it's very good for the world either so there's a whole sense of of uh, belonging of being part of the world of of being cared for by the world that you can discover when you're meditating, um, and that in this caring, being cared for by the world which we live inside, um, we can also discover that that um, that we care for the world, so that you can open this sense of, of of loving the world, and right now I think that's essential. I think it's essential, partly because people are, are starting to, to deal with the climate uh, crisis uh, from a sense of guilt. And my understanding of guilt is that uh, it, it won't last. I mean, for how long can you kind of go around saying, we're so terrible, we have to do this. It's, it's something that our, our, our organism will not sustain that quality for very long, but our organisms are actually created to sustain love for a very long time so if you can feel that there's a sense of a quality that feels like love that comes from the world to us and a quality of love that we can have for the world then you have a much stronger desire to caretake it you have a stronger desire to help it you have a stronger desire to appreciate the way that it helps and feeds us it
0: sounds like um, it's the natural result uh, of that kind of unity, that kind of communion is to care and to take care of, isn't it?
1: I think so, yeah. I think mm-hmm. you're right. Mm-hmm.
0: So you describe pre personal and transpersonal
1: awareness. What is that? Um, well, we develop a personality. When we're born, we don't have one. And uh, there's a sense of, probably, a sense of oneness. And then at some point in time, somewhere between the age of two and three or four, usually, we start to get a sense of, of a personality. And this personality starts to make a story about itself. And this story is usually, has reached some sort of, of level of, of sophistication when we're about 14 or 15. So that's, that's a personal aspect. And most people live inside that story and inside that personality shape. Um, with the changes that life gives us uh, until they die. And one of the things that that meditation can do, and that that actually a lot of different things can do, including walking in the forest, is that uh, you can sort of drop out of that for a little bit. You drop out of a sense of, of being me and what I'm supposed to have for dinner and how are the clothes in the washing machine doing and stuff like that. Uh, you drop out of that whole level into a sense of, not perhaps thinking very much, but, but being in that, uh, in that sense of unity with the forest or a sense of unity with your meditative process. And that can get larger and larger, that quality of unity. And uh, that's the transpersonal aspect. So you sort of drop out of that personality aspect. Now, the personality aspect remains important. So it's not that we're supposed to um, stop having it just as we still also have pre-personal aspects. We still have parts of us that that just, uh, if I ask you to notice your right big toe, for instance, you'll be able to do that right away. There are no words to it. I had words, but you didn't have any words to do it. If I ask you to then sense your left thumb, you can also do that. So there's a, a, a part of us that that is capable of sensing without words or feeling, having emotions without words. And then there's a this, this verbal uh, space where, where we have all our memories and our storylines. And then there's a transpersonal level where we sort of go beyond both of those, but it also incorporates both of those qualities so that uh, there's a sense of, um, of unity with a forest or a sense of, of uh, uh, being a part of the uh, sunset by the ocean or, uh, yeah, that oh. kind of experience.
0: Marianne, what is your mission?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that my mission has a lot to do with that quality of, of uh, uh, care for the world and also care for ourselves. I, I think that there's a connection of dissociation um, that is really, really important to me. The reconnection being to get us out of being fragmented, out of being lonely, uh, out of being um, in a way desperate, because that's what we are when we are alone, when we're lonely. Um, not alone, but lonely. Um, and I think that that kind of connection and the the sense of uh, uh, joy and care that's in that is part of what can help us create a better world. Hmm. Beautifully stated.
0: So I understand today's kind of special for you. Um, it's the release date on your latest book, Neuroaffective Meditation. Where can people find it?
1: Um, well, Inner Traditions, Sacred Planet has, uh, has um, published it and you should be able to, to get it or order it at any bookstore. Uh, Barnes and Nobles does have it. Amazon does have it. Um, Amazon in, in, uh, in here in Europe has it too. And uh, also it's been out on Kindle actually since uh, Christmas so if I had I discovered that because people started writing me and, and congratulating me about it. <laughs> so you have two release dates.
0: <laughs> one is unknown sometime in December and one is today.
1: That's right. That's yeah. right.
0: Pretty yeah. amazing. Pretty yeah. amazing. So again, we are just about out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for, for sharing this amazing process with us whereby we can blend meditation and uh, mental process to uh, best serve everyone. So real quick question. Um, How can we use this
1: to um, evolve? I I believe that uh, evolution and also maturation have to do with developing more, uh, more love just as connection, uh, deep connection, seems to develop more love. Love Uh, is the answer, isn't it?
0: Unfortunately, Marianne, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Our guest this hour has been Marianne Benson, psychotherapist and the author of Neuroaffective Meditation, a practical guide to lifelong brain development, emotional growth, healing trauma which can be found hot off the press on all sorts of places, including Amazon. Her website, MarianneBenson.com. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to access past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Please join us next time as this mission continues bringing information, resources, and support to our rapidly evolving world. Thank <laughs> you.